Well, if you've ever heard the phrase, in crisis, our true character is revealed. What do you think it means to say crisis? Uh, I looked up the word crisis this week and found a few definitions. One of them was a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. Another was a time when a difficult or crucial decision must be made, like a decisive point or a critical point of decision, a point of decision where if not handled appropriately or timely or handled at all, it could be disastrous. Maybe in terms of an individual, crisis could be defined as a person's reaction to an event or situation or just a stressor, like when you pull the little standoff. Now, how many of you have seen crisis done well? A few, a few. How many of you have seen crisis done poorly? Uh, a few more, a lot more. Now, when you think about crisis, um, and you think about crisis done well and crisis done poorly, does it not revolve around leadership sometimes? You see leaders in points of position and they're in a crisis or they're handling a crisis. Some of them do it well, some of them not so well. Now you think about it, I mean, a lot of leadership positions, there's just a burden that leadership carries. Think about uh, a CEO of a company. The, the, the company, the organization, they're looking to you for vision, direction, they want, uh, they want leadership from you. The stakeholders in an organization or in a, in a company, they're, they're always watching the CEO, the leader. They're watching for the bottom line. Are we expanding as an organization or are we shrinking as an organization? That might produce a little stress. What about um, the employees who need encouragement, the employees who need support, the employees who need resources? They need to do their job. They're looking to you as the leader to do that. That may or not, may not produce stress. Uh, if you've ever had and been involved in a merger or a company takeover, whether you're being taken over or you're trying to do the taking over, I have heard it is unbelievably exhausting. I mean, sure, CEOs and presidents, you can look to those people and say, well, they make a lot of money. But isn't a lot of money just one more thing to manage? Now, maybe you're not the point person of an organization. But I would say that I bet a lot of you still have crises in your life. Anytime you're part of a team and you're asked to make a contribution and you feel like you don't contribute, you don't, you don't give all that you can, isn't that a little bit stressful? Doesn't that produce a little bit of anxiety? If you're a part of a, uh, uh, if you're in a school, if you're a student and you have a test, isn't a test something that produces a little anxiety? Maybe that's a crisis. Yes, I'm getting a few head nods from the high schoolers in the back. Maybe you're part of a church and you have a burden. And you're, you're wanting to give, not just receive. And you can't right now. There's a little anxiety in that. Or you're in a relationship and, and it's anxious because one wrong move, one crisis in that relationship, if it's not very... If it's not very secure, it could break the whole thing up. 
I think a lot of us live in crises a lot. And see, in crisis, our true character is revealed. I mean, if you've seen it done poorly, have you ever stopped to think about why? Why is this done so poorly? Why did person X react the way they did? Why did this person choose this over that? What about when these burdens of leadership or these burdens of responsibility, whether they're tests or whether they're companies or whether they're families, why do we carry them with so much responsibility? Why do we carry them with this sense that I have to carry this? Isn't that what sometimes happens? We have, we have people in our lives and they're, they're carrying something that you don't think they should be carrying. Is that a crisis? Do you do anything? Or when you're watching someone you love start to appear like they're following God, but they're not actually following God. They just look kind of like they are. Is that a point of crisis? And do you say anything? You know, I, a week ago or two weeks ago, I probably would have said, no, no, you just you pray for them. You kind of sit back and observe But after my study of the text this week, I think, absolutely not. This is a crisis. If someone is appearing like they are following God, but they're not actually following God, that is a crisis. That's what we see in the story today, and that's where we're going to look. And so we've been in 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to 1 Samuel, probably chapter 9 to start. If you don't have one, today is a great day to have a Bible. There's some in the back, right over by Leah because we're going to be going through a ton of a narrative of a story today. And we're going to see kind of a crisis develop here. Some of the verses will be on the screen. We've been in this book called Samuel. We've been talking about this series called A Heart Right with God. And we've looked at what it means to have a relationship with God, to live in a face-to-face encounter with him, and what are some of the things that we can do that help our, ourselves feel right with God, and then what are some of the things that we have to watch out for. So let me, let me just open in prayer. God, I thank you for, for your word and, and that it speaks to us, and I pray that we would just hear it. We would hear it the way that you want it to be heard today, that my words wouldn't get in the way, but your word would come forth, and that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and then hearts to, to listen and obey. Amen. Well, we've been talking about this guy, Samuel. Samuel's been the prophet that's kind of come up through the story. Samuel was the first and last, the first kind of prophet in a long, long time and the last judge of a series of leaders where God has been king and the the people of God have gone into the promised land. As they've entered the promised land, they've had enemies that haven't wanted them to be there and have tried to squelch them along the way. And the people finally say, no, we want a king because we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king to rule us. We want a king to fight our battles. We don't want to trust God, but we want this human king. And so Samuel talks to God about it. God says, yes, let them do this. And the people choose a man named Saul. Uh, Saul is really good looking. Saul's not campaigning to be king. Saul's not seeking to be king. In fact, uh, 
Samuel is so well-known in the land, the best comparison that I could think of is probably Billy Graham to us, if you know who Billy Graham is. And so Samuel's kind of the Billy Graham at large. He sees this guy, Saul. Saul's tall. Saul's good-looking. Saul uh, has, uh, we find out he's got a really great military background too. And so Samuel invites Saul over to his house. They're going to have dinner. And, And Saul doesn't think that he is worth it. In fact, in one text, he says, wait, 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 I'm the, I'm, the smallest, I'm the smallest tribe of the whole nation of Israel. My family is really small. Why in the world can I have this honor? And, and Samuel, the modern-day Billy Graham, sets, sets him up in the seat of honor at this table and invites him over to his house. And when you dine at someone's house, this is a really big deal in this culture. So he brings him to a place of prominence. The people decide, yes, he is going to be king, Saul's kind of freaking out about it. We think he's kind of scared. And so Samuel says, look, you're going to get three signs from God that this is God. I'm not making it up. First, this is going to happen. Then this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. And when you see this group of prophets, that's number three, you're going to come upon that group of prophets. God's going to change your heart. You're going to be able to speak forth the word of God. You're going to be able to speak his truth. They call it prophecy. And that happens. All three of these signs happen. And Saul's like, whoa. But we see in the text that he's still a little bit scared about this. Because when they actually lift him up to be king, he's hiding. We looked at that last week. He's hiding among the baggage. He's not ready to do this. But God is with him. God says, I'm going to change your heart. I'm going I'm to help you to understand that you can lead my people underneath me. You can lead my people. My inheritance. And for a minute, we think this is going to happen. This is great. Saul goes on this campaign. People, the people that have been around uh, the Israelites, are called some, some of them are called the Amalekites, the Ammonites, and the Philistines. Those are kind of the big three that just, they're basically really big bully nations that hate the people of God. They want to destroy them. Awesome. And so they're coming in, and Saul they actually send threat mail to one of the villages and, and they get kind of scared because the last time they fought these people, uh, almost everyone either died or got their right eye gouged out. How's that for graphic? Now, 7,000 people of them scattered to this village to run away and at this village, these enemy nation comes back in to say, hey, you want to surrender or can we gouge out your eye again? because you ran away. We're coming after you. So they kind of march down. The people are freaked out. Saul hears about this, and Saul says, this is not right. And he marches in, gathers an army, acts like a king. I mean, I, I think of Braveheart. I don't know if that reference is too old. I don't know if he actually put blue face paint on when he marched out, but, uh, you know, he probably said freedom and then went in. And so at that moment, though, the people see this king. And this is big. This is a big deal. Because when Saul first got introduced as king, we're in verse 9, chapter, 20, or chapter 9, verse 27. There were some people that didn't think that Saul should be king. You know how you always have naysayers? There are some people in your life, God puts something in your heart, in your life, and there are some people that are like, I don't believe it. Mm-mm, not going to happen. Now, maybe they have a reason 
that even they find in the Bible to back it up. Like some people might have thought that Saul wasn't supposed to be king because God was supposed to be king. Well, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Some people might have thought Saul wasn't supposed to be king because they know their Bible really well. And in Genesis 49.10, this really great, great grandfather of the faith says, Judah, this is a specific tribe, actually a person in his family, one of his sons, but that son has lots of more kids. They become a family. So the family of Judah is the one where kings are supposed to come from. Saul's from Benjamin, so maybe they're naysayers because they're saying, no, 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 you're from Benjamin, you're supposed to be from Judah. Maybe when you feel something, when you sense something from God, that this is from God, that you are supposed to be in this place or do this thing, people are like, no, no, they're naysayers. And they even have Bible verses to back it up. Have you experienced that? Some of you have. And sometimes, let's just be honest, some people just don't like Saul because he's good looking. He's the best looking guy in the land, it says. Oh, and tall, and humble, and a great warrior. Oh, and now like he has the spirit of God on him so he can speak forth God's truth. You know when someone has the whole package, how we just don't like it? There was this girl in college, her name was Christy, she was a runner, she was um, really, like, she was going to get an A in chemistry, she was tall, legs up to here, I don't mean that in a really inappropriate way, I just mean, like, wow, and sweet, and attractive, and blonde, because all of us wanted to date blondes for some reason, and, and she had a boyfriend. And so we immediately, I don't know about you, but we hated that boyfriend, We didn't even know this boyfriend, Marty. How could Christy be with Marty? Marty's like Marty McFly, if you remember that. I mean, oh, and he wanted to be a funeral director. We're like, this guy has to be the biggest dweeb on the planet. I hope he never reads this. I mean, listen, we just, I mean, the six of my guy friends all wanted to date Christy. We didn't do the math on that one. And we all decided to hate Marty. And then we meet Marty, and he is humble, and he's generous, and, and he's super, super uh, chivalristic to his girlfriend, and it was really hard to hate him after that, <laughs> which made us want to hate him all the more, because for some reason, we, when we categorize someone, which I think we would all admit we do, When somebody seems to have it all together, sometimes, maybe let's just be honest, we might be jealous. And I think that it's safe to say there were some people that probably just didn't like Saul because Saul got picked. You put it in your category. Boss, got the raise, homecoming king or queen, whatever it takes. They got the, the status title from society that says, I'm awesome. And some people just didn't like it. But Saul goes, and he acts like a king. He goes to this land, it says in verse 11, I mean, sorry, in chapter 11, 
and he destroys the attacks. The threat of the attacks, he destroys the attacks. And it says in verse 13 of chapter 11, God gave us this victory. Because see, after they won this battle, those scoundrels that said, we don't think Saul should be king, they were brought forth. They were brought up to him and said, these people should be destroyed. You should kill them. And Saul says, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. No. God gave us this victory. Why would, we, why would we kill our own people? So this man of faith, Samuel, he has been following God faithfully for his whole life. He's learned what it means to be secure in his relationship with God. He's learned what it's mean to trust God. He's learned what it's mean to discern God's voice. Because remember, his mentor, Eli, he couldn't hear God. Remember the little boy, Samuel? Runs up to Eli. Hey, you called. No, I didn't. Go back to bed. Okay. And then God says, Samuel, Samuel. Eli, you called? No, I didn't. Eli is the grown man of God, the priest, the religious elite, and he can't hear God's voice. But Samuel can. All Samuel's life, he's learned what it means to trust God. He's learned what it's mean to depend on God. Yes, he had a moment where he wanted his sons to be, you know, the rulers. He made a mistake. But otherwise, a life of faithfulness. And even though God, even though he's grieving that the people want a king, God has revealed Saul as king, and he is trying to be faithful in that. And in this moment... I, I believe, a little logic, a little interpretation, in crisis, our character is revealed. Okay? So Samuel says, God, I don't know. Is this a crisis? Is this a difficult situation that needed to be made? This town that's in our land is being attacked. Difficult situation. Difficult decision, crucial decision, a decision which if, if he doesn't do anything, bad stuff's going to happen. Eyes are going to be gouged out. And in terms of an individual, a person's reaction to an event or a situation. If this is going through Samuel's mind, we can't know, but if it is, Samuel's like, well, that's a crisis. Saul handled it appropriately without anxiety, um, made the crucial decision, gave God the glory, didn't take revenge. That sounds like a king. That sounds like someone I'd want to emulate. Let's, let's renew the king and the kingdom. Let's do this. And so they lift him up. And they say, Saul, Saul, long live the king. And Samuel stands up, and Samuel says, okay, guys, you know what? We shouldn't ask for a king, but God allowed us to have a king, and, and as long as the king and the people, as long as we follow God, as long as we keep God as ultimate ruler over us, we're going to be okay. Yeah, the people said. Anytime the people do this, if you read the story of God, that's usually bad. I mean, Moses, Joshua, it's, it's just bad. Yeah, we'll follow God. But, but maybe you've said that too. Yeah, I'll follow God. Yeah, sort of. So the people lift up 
the people lift up Saul. And Samuel says, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the king and the kingdom. Make it official. Let us go to Gilgal. All right? Now, this should have triggered something in Saul's mind. Because remember when Saul was scared and Saul didn't want to be king? God said, or God said through his messenger, Samuel, you're going to get three signs. You're going to get this. You're going to get this. You're going to get this. Last one's the prophets. And when that happens, this will be a sign that God is with you. Then go to Gilgal and wait seven days for me at Gilgal. I don't know why. It's just what God said. Interesting, the king and kingdom are made official in Gilgal. And this is after the attack of the the victory that Saul has, and he's in Gilgal. Those enemies, they kind of keep coming up. Even though Saul has a victory, Israel has a victory, the people come back. They come back with more armies. They come back to say, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't want you to get all thinking you're something, something because you're the king. We don't want you to get any big army and get any confidence in your God. No, no, no. We're going to come and squash you. Wait seven days in Gilgal. You know, sometimes God asks us to do things that seem really weird. Or that just seem like they're not that important. And we think that God only cares about the big stuff. Well, as long as I don't do that major sin, this will be okay. Because it's, it's, just, it's just a little, it's little, it's little. Seven days in Gilgal. Wait for me. I'll arrive, I'll do the sacrifice, and then I'll give it instructions. That seems little. But God cares about the little things. And sometimes Saul lost my spot. Sorry. All right, chapter 13. Wait seven days in Gilgal. People now from around the land, they've had this victory. The people from around the land are coming in. It says in chapter 13, verse 4, that the Philistines, bad people, enemies of God, march down with 3,000 chariots. Chariots in this time are like tanks to us today. It says there's two charioteers, so 6,000 of those with 3,000 chariots. So just think, 3,000 tanks, every tank's got a driver and a gunner. They can do some serious damage with 3,000 tanks. Then it says they have foot soldiers that outnumber the sands on the seashore. Okay? There's so many, they can't even count them. These people are so scared that half the army, we don't know if it's half, just made that part up, but they scatter into the f- fields, into the hills, into the crevices, into the caves. But Saul stayed in Gilgal, because that's what Samuel told him to do. Saul waits every day as he sees the army getting bigger and bigger and bigger even though his army might be getting a little smaller. And even if they're staying and not getting smaller, they're getting more and more and more scared. 
But he told them, wait. Wait seven days. Wait for me to come. I'll do the offering. I'll give you the message from God. But Saul stayed. His men trembled with fear. He waited seven days, but at the seventh day, God didn't sh- Samuel didn't show up. And when Saul realized the troops were leaving, he demanded, bring me the offerings and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the offerings himself. And just as Saul was finishing with the offerings, Samuel arrived. I want like a, a big gong happening right there. Because maybe everybody else thinks this is little. Maybe some of the army doesn't even know what's going on here. But Samuel walks up and he says, what's going on? I think Samuel sa- or Saul says this. We didn't show up. I was in a crisis. Did you see the army? The army was huge. The men were scattering. And you didn't arrive. You didn't show up. You didn't come when you said you'd come. Maybe so. Samuel's going, ah, oh, it's still the seventh day. I didn't actually tell you the time. We don't have Timex, remember? Nobody wears a watch. This is like 3,000 BC. No, it's 1,000. I saw the men scattering, my men scattering. Don't, don't miss that. That's what Saul says. I saw my men scattering. Whose army was this? This was God's army. Saul was the leader of God's people. But he saw my men scattering, scattering, and you didn't arrive, and the Philistines were ready for the battle. The Philistines are going to come against us, and I didn't even ask for the Lord's help, so I felt compelled to do the burnt offering. In this moment of anxiety, I had a crisis. Now, I don't think we have any people marching against us. Maybe you feel like you do in your life. But do you have things that become the tyranny of the urgent? Something becomes urgent in your life and all of a sudden it becomes stressful. All of a sudden, like because it's urgent, it turns into a crisis. And when it turns into a crisis, doesn't it turn into some anxiety? And in that moment of anxiety, does it turn to insecurity? And in that moment of anxiety and insecurity, doesn't that sometimes lead to doubt? Maybe doubt of ourselves, maybe doubt of God. Is God going to come through? Can I come through? Can I do this? I don't know. So doubt leads to a lack of trust that God is going to be God and that God's going to be enough. And when we doubt that God's going to be enough, it always leads to rebellion or disobedience. That is the story of Scripture, friends. Adam and Eve, they doubted God. I don't know, did God really say that that tree is not to eat of? That's the problem. They doubted God. They doubted that God was good. They sang the song, Wonderful King, but they didn't really believe the words. Crisis came up from urgency. Urgency led to this anxiety. Anxiety led to insecurity, which led to doubt, which led to lack of trust in God, which led to rebellion disobedience. 
See, I think Saul says, I had a crisis, I got anxious, I felt compelled because I wanted to appear godly, not actually obey God. See, I think that anxious people are actually insecure people. And, and if that's you, you might not like being categorized that way. I don't like being called insecure. I don't like being called anxious. I drink a lot of coffee so I could sound kind of anxious for this talk today. But I don't want to be told that. Maybe you don't either. But think about anxious people. Don't anxious people sometimes wear masks? Don't insecure people sometimes put on a front? They don't want you to know the real them because you might not like it. And don't anxious or insecure people like obsess about their friends sometimes because they want to make sure that they have those friends in case they appear alone or they want to be, have the approval of their friends. They might even count their friends to make sure they have enough friends. I actually saw on a Facebook post like, oh, I lost a friend. I went from, you know, this number down to, I, I don't know who I lost. If you're counting your friends on Facebook and finding your worth in that, like, we should talk later. I won't judge you, but I might go like that to your head. <laughs> that was probably inappropriate. <laughs> Have you seen insecure parents? Aren't some insecure parents, like, super strict, thinking they might do something wrong? Or the other way, have you seen insecure parents that are just way too lenient? And you just want to come up to them and go, do you just want to be friends with your kid? Are you worried that they're not going to like you? Maybe you've seen insecure coworkers that you're not sure if, They've really got your back because they're just kind of looking out to keep their job. I think Saul is insecure and anxious. I think in crisis, his character's coming out. I mean, Samuel calls him foolish. He says, this is a foolish thing you've done. Verse 13. Foolish. Foolish because you called them your men. God's army. Foolish because you just blamed me if I'm Samuel. Foolish because you looked at the enemy and you looked at their army and then you looked at your army and you totally forgot about God. Or foolish because you think that you can ignore the messenger of God. Because that's what Samuel is. And if, if you study 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Second Chronicles. You will see that every king has a prophet. And that prophet is a messenger of God to a person of authority. Even people in authoritative places have to submit, come under, and be obedient to the messenger of God. Maybe you don't like to think about the Samuel in your life. Maybe it's a friend. It's a pastor person or something. Maybe it is a parent. But they speak truth into your life that's sometimes hard to hear. And you think, they're not God. Maybe they're speaking for God. 
There's a proverb that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Samuel's worried. Because Samuel sees this man that he has prayed for, that he's anointed, go, I don't, I don't, I don't think you fear God. I, I, and it, it just starts to come all out. Because when we live in anxiety and when we don't fear God, we start to count all the human parts of life. There's this little subtle verse in 1 Samuel 14, 52. It says the Israelites fought with the Philistines Saul's entire lifetime. Do you ever notice insecure people or anxious people? Don't they always seem like they're struggling? Like even if they're, if, even if they're with God, they're kind of fighting God. Like they're, they're moving through molasses. And yet, if we know the whole story of God, Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Walking with Jesus isn't supposed to be a burden because it's not about counting all the rules or performing for God. But insecure people, anxious people, they, I think they forget that. I think they go, I don't know, I don't know. Do we have this? Do we have this? Do we have this? It says that every time Saul saw a man who was able, he recruited him for the army. And what does it say when God's ideal comes forward? In in Deuteronomy 17, when the ideal king comes forward, this king must not amass a large army. And we see another story in uh, the book of Judges. We see Gideon have this really big army, and God says, nope, those people got to go away, those people got to go away, those people got to go away, till this army is tiny. Why? Because God says to Gideon, if you win with this huge army, you will think that you did it. I want the army to be so small that everybody knows God did it. When my daughter went in the hospital in our first week of our very first service, God was like, I want you to know, Rob Michelle Jacobson, this isn't about you. And this church is going to acknowledge me. It's going to succeed. I'm going to be king. It's a little bit of mine. Maybe God has said something like that to you. If you're fighting God, Maybe it's because you're putting trust in yourself, your strength, your performance. And when that happens, it's not good. It's not good at all. Samuel wakes up in a dream one night, and God speaks to him. And it is not the cool, like, boyhood dream. It is Samuel. I am, I am grieved that I made Saul king. He does not have a heart like mine. He doesn't follow my commands. I am, because he has rejected my commands, I'm rejecting him, basically. And it says that Samuel stayed up all night praying to the Lord, pleading with the Lord for Saul 
to, for, for this not to be true. But Samuel starts to realize that Saul is really interested in appearing godly, but not obeying God. I mean, when we get to um, chapter 15, God sends a message through Samuel, and he says, Samuel says to Saul, Saul, you need to go and wipe out these people. They have, they have, they have tried to destroy me every step of the way from when I was taking these people out of Egypt. You need to go and wipe out everything. And Samuel says, okay. Or Saul says, okay. And he goes and fights, and we find out that he captures the king, does not kill him, and he takes the best of everything, not destroyed. Partial obedience is disobedience. That's hard. It's hard to hear. But I think it's true. Chapter 15, verse 14. Samuel walks in the scene after this dream, after, after God comes to him and says, I have been grieved that I made Saul king. And Samuel walks, Saul walks up to this man of God, this messenger, and he's like, the Lord bless you. I've obeyed. Have you ever tried to confront someone that's had partial obedience? thinking that God told you to do this and they appear godly? That's what Saul's doing right now. Oh, the Lord bless you, Samuel. I've obeyed. And Samuel says, really? Because I hear sheep. I hear cattle. I hear livestock. I thought God said, destroy everything. Oh, 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 well, um, diversion tactic? Oh, well, we wanted to keep the best. We wanted to keep the best for sacrifice. We wanted to use it for God's glory. Verse 15, it's true. The army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, but we are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. Oh yeah, that, that king that, that you captured? I mean... Verse 16, I'd love to hear, I'd love to be able to speak Hebrew. That's what I really love. Samuel says to Saul, stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. I, I, I'd love to hear the heat of the moment exchange in that. Oh, 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 we've destroyed everything else. Sorry, I'm looking for innocent ears. Shut the heck up. Do you want to know what God said to me? God said to me, partial obedience is disobedience. God said to me that Samuel, or Saul, you were the humble man. Yes, you were tall, and yes, you were good looking, but you were humble, and I changed your heart. I made it right with you. I took you to greatness. I said you would lead my people. You were supposed to submit to me, and what is this? Your heart is not right with me. You think you can just appear godly, not actually obey God. Now, Although you, were th although you think little of yourself, verse 17, are you not the leader of all the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites. 
until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? It's the second time Samuel's confronted Saul, and Saul says, but I did obey. Now he's like trying to change the story. First he diverted it to the army. Now, oh, but I I brought back King Agag as a trophy? I destroyed everything else. Then my troops, I'm blaming someone else, my troops brought the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle. And and again, they're going to sacrifice them, so we're going to do it for God. And God says a line that if you've read a lot of the Bible, you might have heard before. Samuel says on behalf of God, do you think God cares more about sacrifice than obedience? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Submitting to God is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is like witchcraft. It's like idolatry. Rebellion says, I don't trust you, God. I trust something else. Stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you. It's only then that Saul says, okay, okay, I sinned. I sinned. I made a mistake. This is the first time Saul's owned anything in the whole story. How do you approach people in your life that are doing wrong or that are partially obeying or that are appearing godly but not actually obeying God? I say it depends. Not because I'm a millennial or new, you know, postmodern. I say it depends because it depends on their heart. Scripture says if someone's weak, we should come and we should strengthen them. If someone doesn't know better, we should give them coaching and encouragement. And if someone is proud, then we should warn. And Saul is proud. This is the first time he's actually ever admitted he did something wrong. But he's got hidden motives. Yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed the instructions of the Lord's command. I was afraid of the people... I was afraid of the people and what they demanded. But now, please forgive my sin and come back so that we may worship God. No, I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to do that, Samuel says. And Saul, Samuel turns to leave after he says no, and Saul grasps for him, grasps. He is desperate. It says that, that he goes up to Samuel and he tears his robe. And Samuel just looks at him. This man that he's walked with, this man that he's prayed for, this man that he anointed, this man that he spent all night saying, please, God, please, change your mind. And he sees like Saul being so desperate, not for God though, so desperate to appear godly that he would tear this man's robe. And he says, because you have... The Lord has torn the kingdom from you and given it to someone else. And even in that, what does Saul say? Saul says, I, okay, I've sinned, but at least honor me before the elders. It's another refrain of just saying, I, I just want to appear godly. I don't actually want to obey God. 
there's this phrase that happens in these verses a couple times in chapter 13 and chapter 14 that say, your heart is not like mine. I'm giving the kingdom to someone whose heart is like mine. We will find out later that is David. Now, David is not perfect. In fact, David sinned. In fact, David sinned in big ways, multiple reactions of sin. But when he is confronted by the prophet, the messenger of God, we see him say, oh, I have sinned. I have sinned against God. A heart right with God is one that can confess when they see mistake. One that wants to obey God, even if they can't do it perfectly, rather than appear godly. We'll find out that David is not worried about appearing godly. He's worried about and concerned about having his heart right with God. So, as you think about your life and your heart, maybe these questions cut into that a little. What does it look like for you to trust, really trust God? When you think about your life and and appearing godly versus obeying God, what do you first think of? We see over and over Saul say, I was, I was worried about what the people would think. I cared more about what the people thought than what God thought. Do you ever have that thought? As the band comes up to really let us think and reflect on, on what it means to worship God, what does it mean to submit to God's authority. When a messenger of God walks into your life and says, I think you might be appearing godly, do we have the strength, the security to listen? See, God has given us everything we need. In Jesus, he has come and he has died for us. And so we can fall into two categories. We can either feel like we're totally okay with God and therefore we can do whatever we want. We have freedom in Christ and we can be tempted to say, I don't have to submit. Or we can be given this new heart and think it's all about performance and we got to go and we got to go and we got to work and we got to work and we can always be insecure wondering if we ever had enough. And so that is what I call both sides of the gospel. Both sides of the good news is Jesus has paid for it all, therefore we are secure in Christ. And when we are tempted to do things that are wrong, we can look at this story, we can look at Saul and we can say, no, no, because God doesn't want us to appear godly. He wants us to be right with him. We shouldn't be tempted. The gospel, Jesus died for that. He was ripped from limb to limb for sin. But at the same point, We shouldn't look like we're standing accused. If you've always been accused, God doesn't give us a new heart so that we can rip it up again. So that we can live a life of discouragement. No, 
No, that's the gospel. Jesus, Jesus died for us to have life in him, not discouragement. Life and security that leads us to a humble submission. What does a humble submission look like for you today? God, I thank you for um, the drama of Scripture. And even though we've gone through God, a lot of scenes, God, I pray that we would feel the tension that the story is trying to get across. The tension of two friends, even. One who wants to be right with you and, and one who, from our vantage point, just wants to appear like they're right with you. God, I pray that we, as a people, would care more about obeying you and living in relationship with you than what we look like to other people. So speak to us now in this time as we reflect on what it means to have our, have our obedience be more, more important than sacrifice, than looking godly, doing something religious. And restore us to a place where we don't live in discouragement or performance, but we live in a humble security with you.